Well, hello everyone. Welcome to our Bible class on First and Second Peter. My name is Bob Lawrence, uh, one of the Bible class teachers here at the Anchorage Church of Christ, and I'm glad that you've chosen to join us. This week we begin with a question. Imagine that you are sitting with one of your friends. This is a person who trusts you, and they're confident enough to come to you and ask, can I ask you a personal question? And let's say that you're sitting with your friend and say, sure, go ahead. And your friend says, uh, I, I know that you believe in, in God and that you are one of these Christians. And you say, yeah, that's true. And they say, I, I wonder, do you really believe all this? And, and let's assume you think about that for a minute and you say, yes, yes, of course. And then they ask you, would you be willing to tell me why? What would be your answer to the question? If someone asks you to explain this hope that you have, well, that's the challenge that Peter gives us uh, this week in our reading, in which uh, Peter's going to say, always be prepared at a moment's notice to explain or to give the reason for the hope that you have, doing it with gentleness and respect. We'll get to that passage in just a minute, uh, but I want to bring you up to speed before we read today's scripture, which will be in 1 Peter chapter 3, so if you want to go ahead and, and turn there. But remember here in 1 Peter that we've we've been listening to this letter that was written by Peter in the first century to a group of Christians that were spread out over the land that is, is now Turkey. So churches that were meeting in different places from uh, Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and in Asia and what was called Bithynia. It was like a big circle drawn around the, the area that's modern day Turkey. And there were people living in each of these communities and they, they each received either a copy or received this letter that was taken by Silas around to each of these churches. And that, that letter had a message. And the message was, life is about to get tough. If you choose to follow Christ, you will be misunderstood. You will be maligned. You will be reviled. In some cases, you will be persecuted. But don't be surprised, Peter says, at the fiery trial that you will go through. Your faith will be tested. But remember, in the last couple of weeks, we caught how Peter says, even if this is true, you live your life among the people in your community in such a way, in such an honorable way, or a beautiful way, actually, the word says, live your life in such a beautiful way that when people see your way of life, even if they accuse you of doing evil, they will eventually glorify God on the day that he visits us. And Peter says, you remember last week, that a life that is lived in this beautiful way before the community is characterized by a particular virtue. And that virtue is best described by the word hupotasso. It's translated in your Bible sometimes as uh, be subject to or submit yourself to or place yourself under the leadership of, of someone else. But it's really one word in Greek, and that, that word is hupotasso. It just means that you voluntarily, uh, uh, on your own accord, uh, intentionally place yourself under the leadership or the guidance of someone someone else. You become their servant. You practice hupotasso. And Peter says that is a specific characteristic of people who choose to follow Christ. 
they hupotasso themselves uh, as citizens under, he says, the emperor and the governors, we would say today, under our political leaders. So a, a Christian is a great citizen because he or she practices hupotasso. And secondly, he says, uh, a Christian is an incredible employee, uh, an incredible worker or a servant to uh, their master or boss or employer because uh, he or she practices this hupotasso. And not only are we good citizens, not only are we good employees, but we are our good spouses in our family. Wives, he says, you practice hupotasso to your husbands. And husbands in the same way. He doesn't use the word hupotasso, but he says you uh, live with your wives in a way that is understanding. In other words, you're, you're willing to lift them up uh, against the things that would uh, uh, cause your wives to be oppressed or maligned or marginalized in your, in your culture. And so it doesn't matter if we are talking about ourselves as citizens or if we're talking about ourselves as Christian employees or whether we are Christian spouses, it doesn't matter. He says, you practice this virtue of hupotasso. And that's what we talked about uh, last week. But he ends that section uh, not with just talking about citizens and employees and family members. He ends this week by saying, now for everyone else. And that's what brings us into 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, when he says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And so you hear in that this, these characteristics of a person who practices hupotasso, voluntarily living your life in a way that is mindful of others, that's sympathetic of others, that's humble uh, towards others. And then he says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. In other words, when somebody speaks bad against you, don't return a harsh word back. But on the contrary, you bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then Peter says, that reminds me of a verse. And then he quotes a verse from the Old Testament. Now remember, we've learned that anytime you hear a a writer quote an Old Testament scripture, just click on that scripture like it was a, a little icon on your screen and let it uh, come out fully. This passage that we're reading comes from Psalm chapter 34. And so Peter takes us back to Psalm 34 and really should bring to mind that whole psalm. But he only, he only quotes one or two of, of the, the ideas or the passages out of Psalm 34. But go back, if you have a chance today, read, read the whole uh, Psalm 34. And I bet you'll find passages or at least lines in Psalm 34 that you've heard in various songs that we sing or you've heard in other uh, contexts. But here's the part Peter really zooms in on from Psalm 34. He says, Whoever desires to love life, and to see good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And then Peter asks you this question. Now, who is there who is going to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? In other words, he says, who, who's going to try to hurt you if you are really eager to do what is good? And then he pauses 
and he knows what your response will be, you'll say, uh, no good deed ever goes unpunished. I can think of a lot of people that want to do me harm even when I'm trying to do what is right and what is good. And he knows that. And so he answers his own question there by saying, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Now, underline that word blessed. We'll come back to that uh, maybe in a week or so when we get over into chapter four, because that's the same word blessed that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And he goes on to say, blessed are you if people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Jesus. He, he says that you are blessed. And Peter remembers that. And he puts that in, into this passage as well. So you, if, you're, if you suffer for doing what is right, you will be uh, happy or you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. And don't be troubled. Now listen to his instruction. But in your hearts, and the word their heart really should bring to mind the word mind. The, the word heart there doesn't mean the center of feeling. It means the center of yourself, of your, uh, your mind, where you make your decisions and your firm convictions lie. In your heart, honor Christ as Lord. Set him apart as holy, as Lord. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so there's the question, and it's a bit of a challenge. When Peter says, if, if you live your life in such a beautiful way that others, even if they accuse you of doing evil, eventually glorify God. If you live your life in that way by practicing this a virtue of hupotasso, eventually somebody's going to ask. Someone in a moment where they uh, are comfortable will pull you aside and say, do you really believe this? And when you say, yes, yes, I do, they'll say, would you be willing to tell me why? And Peter says, when that moment comes, you always be ready at a moment's notice to give a defense, the word there is apologia, is where we get our term apologetics. And it doesn't mean here that you you know pull out the, the whiteboard and, and write out all the you know top 10 reasons that you believe in God. He's not talking here about going into uh, all of the proofs for the existence of God or the existence of Jesus or the historical Jesus or the resurrection. It, it, there's a place for apologetics. But Peter has something different in mind. What he has in mind here is that natural question that is raised by a life that is well-lived, and that's your life. Eventually, someone is going to see that you are confident about who you are and whose you are. You are of a chosen people. You are one of those who is a part of a royal priesthood. You are of a holy nation. You, who know yourself to be of God's greatest possession. People recognize that that changes the way that you live your life, and it will beg the question. They will raise the question, what is it that gives you this hope? And what's your answer? Now, Peter doesn't just raise the question and walk away. He actually gives you the answer. And this is an important point, because if, uh, if, you, if you didn't read this letter start to finish, 
and you just stopped right there, you might think that uh, Peter just opens that up as an open question and you can answer it however you want, but that's not his intent. His intent is to say, you be prepared to give this answer to anyone who gives you uh, this question or raises this question and asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And, and what's the answer? Well, that's what follows next. He says, you be prepared, do so with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And Peter here is not saying that if you give a good defense, you will put them in their place. That's, that's not what this verse uh, says, and that's not the way it reads. It's saying that uh, you again, are living your life in such a way that even if they revile you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Jesus, eventually, when they come to see the answer to the question, they're going to realize they were wrong. This put to shame, it just means that, that, that crushing feeling of realizing I was, I was wrong. And that's what happens when a person comes to realize the, the real answer to this question. Why is, it that we, why is it that we have hope? For it is better for you to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So keep your life straight. Uh, don't, don't use, like he said earlier, your freedom as a cloak for doing evil. Instead, uh, seek, be eager, uh, desire, and be zealous for doing what is right. And then here's the answer to the question. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, what he says next, I'm going to warn you, is a dense, very hard to translate scripture. There's a lot of debate about what this next collection of ideas even means. But let me do my best to at least, at least guide you through it and, and make sure you don't miss what he clearly says. So the setup here is that Peter has asked you the question. You, you be prepared to answer this question. Uh, where is it that you get this hope? Be, be ready at a moment's notice to answer anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And the answer is, first, because Christ suffered for sins, the righteous suffered for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive by the Spirit. And through the Spirit, or it says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits who were in prison. And we don't know what that really means. Who are these spirits in prison? But he says, it's the spirits who were in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And, and so he takes you back to the stories that you'll read in the book of Genesis, where God, in order to make the world right again, sent an incredible flood over the whole world and destroyed the world. <clears throat> but while Noah was building that ark, uh, that, that boat that would save his family and, uh, and, of course, all the animals you know that were in the boat, while uh, Noah was building that ark, he was preaching to the people. And he told them, God is going to make the world right again. Now's the time to follow him. And the people ignored him. And, and so they were destroyed. And we're given this image here 
of Jesus in the Spirit going and preaching to them. Now, we don't know what the result of that preaching was. You should not take this word preaching as, or this proclaiming, in the same way as a minister standing up in front of a congregation. That's not the type of proclaiming. This is more the idea of a person who goes and unrolls you know, the, the scroll in front of the crowd and says, Hear ye, hear ye, I have a message. So Jesus went and he presented a message to apparently these people who did not choose to listen to Noah when he was uh, preaching so, so long ago. And so there's the image of Jesus showing up. And what Peter's bringing to mind, I think, is this idea that it's at that moment that they realized we were wrong. That's the shame he was talking about. That, that crushing feeling of knowing uh, that he, Noah, in that case, Noah was right. And, and Jesus has come to show that they should have listened. Well, that may be one of the things that uh, Peter had in mind. But here's, here's what he goes on to say. That uh, Jesus preached to the uh, spirits who were in prison, who formerly did not obey when God's patience was waiting in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. And then he tells you about the ark. And he says, in this ark, only a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So I'll leave it to you to go back and read this story. But those eight people are Noah, his wife, uh, their uh, three sons, and their sons' wives. And so that is that. So three, six, and then uh, uh, seven and eight. So there's your eight people. Those are the eight people that were in the ark along with all the animals. And they were brought, and notice he says here at the end of verse 20, they were brought safely through water. And then Peter says, you know, that's what baptism is like for you. Now let's pause for a minute and talk about what baptism is. Uh, you've seen someone who's been baptized and, and maybe you, you've been baptized yourself and you remember what that's like to go down into the water to allow yourself to die. And, and so you die to yourself and you are laid underwater in a way that symbolizes a death and a burial. And then you're raised up from that water as a, a symbol of being raised to new life. It It actually is a a reenactment of what happened even in Jesus's tomb in which there's a death, a burial, and a resurrection. And that's that's what's happening to you. You're dying to your old self, you're being buried, and the new self is coming, coming to life. And Peter points to that and he says, you know, for you, that's just like when God was making the world right again and he saved these eight people through water. That's what he's doing for you. But then Peter's quick to say, you realize... Uh, at the end of that verse, that baptism is not the removal of dirt from the body. In other words, you're not taking a bath. This isn't just washing off sins on the outside. He's, he's remaking you. It's not removal of dirt from the body. It's an appeal to God for a good conscience. So when a person is baptized, what they are saying uh, to God is, I want you to bring me through this. And, and, uh, and save me, save, remember, in the sense of make me right again. And so that's what a person is saying when they are baptized. It saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, here's the answer to your question. It saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the the reason for the hope that you have. And the, the answer you give is my hope comes from knowing that I am being remade into the person that I was meant to be in the first place. And that is happening through the power of Jesus who was raised from the dead. In other words, dead people don't just come back from the dead without the power of someone who knows how all of this is put together. The only one who can raise a person from the dead is someone who knows how all the forces in the entire universe work. And, and if, you can, uh, if you can imagine that, uh, that idea of one person or through one person, God is able to have control of all the forces you know, in the universe. A physicist would say, well, there are four of the known forces that we have. There's a force of gravity. There's the force of electromagnetism. We have strong nuclear forces, weak nuclear forces. And if you've been watching the news recently, you've seen that we're starting to see evidence that there may be forces that we have not even identified yet. Well, imagine, regardless of how many forces there are in the universe, imagine someone who walks on the scene and and shows himself to have mastery over all of those forces. He can take the elements of bread and make more bread. He can take the elements that make up fish and make more fish. He can uh, alter the principles of, of buoyancy and gravity and have control over those forces and actually walk across liquid water. Someone who can control entire weather patterns and someone who can uh, walk up to a person who is totally blind and have total mastery over the biology and the neurology and the, uh, the enzymatic reactions and all the proteins and have uh, control over all the forces in the human body to give a blind man sight or a layman the ability to walk, or to walk up to a tomb in which there's been a man dead for days, and four days later, yell out to Lazarus. Read this in you know John chapter 11, where he says, Lazarus, come forth. And, and right then instantly, having control of all the forces in the universe, a dead man comes back from the grave. And so that's what Peter's pointing to here, when he says, here's the reason for the hope that you have, you are following the one who has mastery over all the forces of the universe and for that reason was raised from the dead. All these New Testament writers keep pointing to that same event that Jesus was raised from the dead. There's your proof that he's the one of all, uh, anyone who could have control of anything. He's the one who has control of all reality. And, and if you catch that, then you'll understand what Peter says in conclusion to this week's passage when he says, Jesus Christ is the one who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, take a deep breath, having been subjected to him. And do you know which word is used there for subjected? It's the word hupotasso. And so Peter brings us full circle and he says, you live your life in, in a way in your community that is beautiful so that even if others accuse you of doing evil, they will eventually glorify God. And you say, well, what does that, what does that mean to live in a way that's beautiful in my community? And he says, 
you practice hupotasso. Uh, whether it's the emperor who is supreme, or the governors, or your boss at work, or your spouse at home, or for everybody else, regardless, you practice hupotasso. And when somebody recognizes how you are voluntarily laying down your life in service to others, and they ask you, where is it that you get this hope? Peter says, here's your answer. I follow the one to whom the entire universe will bend its knee. You understand that every, every boss has a boss. Every leader has a leader. In this day and time, you would say every emperor one day will bend his knee to the, the ruler of the entire universe. And Peter ends this passage today by saying, you understand, that's Jesus, who already has taken his place in the kingdom of heaven. And it's, a, it's meant to bring to mind this idea. Uh, Jesus has already taken his place in what God is making right again, making everything you know, right again, so that regardless of who you point to, could be angels or authorities or powers. The point is, everyone who actually knows says, I'm going to put myself voluntarily, hupotasso, I put myself under Jesus because he's the one who's in control of all reality. I think that's what's led, uh, what led Pascal. You might remember Pascal was the, uh, uh, the old French uh, mathematician and theologian and a bit of a philosopher. Uh, he's the one who was quoted as writing a prayer when he was a young man and first became a Christian. He wrote out this prayer. He said, Lord, help me, help me to do great things as though they were little and easy, since I do them by your power. And help me to do little things as though they were great and important, since I do them in your name. Well, may that be our, may that be our prayer. I, I think that's what Peter is getting to in this passage when he says, live your life in a way that's beautiful. And when people ask, how is it that you live this way? Why is it that you live this way? You're able to point, not to yourself and how you're living, but you point towards him and say, I do it because I bow myself to the one who's in control of all reality. Well, I hope that helps in at least giving you a taste of what is in today's passage. But I'm going to pause there and leave you with this passage today and maybe a few questions. But here's the main question for this week, and I hope that you'll take time uh, in, in your own home and with those that you're with right now to openly ask each other this question. Uh, what is it that gives you this hope? What is it that causes you to live the way that you're living as a follower of Christ? And see if you can take Peter's answer and put that in your own words and think of how you would explain that with gentleness and respect to the community uh, in which you live and to the friends that you have and the people with whom you work. So that'll be your question this week. May God bless the reading of his word. I look forward to seeing you next week.